Hello, welcome to Homework, Hudson's podcast about how to make the design, financing, and construction of homes work better and suck less. My name is Wayne Conger, the CEO of Huts and the host of Homework. We speak with some of the smartest people in housing who are, like Huts, rethinking the industry. Today, we have a fantastic chat with Anthony Averbeck on the role of place in housing and the future of small towns in America. Anthony's an architect, urban designer, and lecturer at Northeastern. His research focuses on housing innovation, ruralism, collective living, and the unique qualities that define the small town American experience. Let's get started and explore some new ideas on how to make home work. Hey guys, this is Wayne Conger. I'm the founder and CEO of Huts. I'm happy to be joined today with Anthony Averbeck, a architect and urban designer and researcher and scholar who thinks a lot about housing and their relationship to small towns and their different formats across the country. And so it's really a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me, Wayne. It's great to be here. For sure. So, you know, as part of this homework series, we think a lot about how our huts projects fit within the larger kind of housing context. And that can mean mm-hmm. anything from financing to design to how they're used. But I think what I wanted to focus on today is really this notion of place that every house yep. is sort of part of a community and every house is really sort of a platform where people are engaged in everything that's around that house. And so often with our Huts clients, particularly if they're New Yorkers or we're working, say, on their house in the Catskills or in the Hudson Valley or in the Berkshires, there's this notion of like, I want a place where I can escape the city. I want to go to somewhere. And sometimes there can be a bit of an agnostic perception of where that somewhere is. And what we always try to impress on our clients or customers is that every one of these small towns has very different flavors and very different cultures and very different sort of places that you're inserting yourself in. And they understand themselves and you will understand yourself not just as somewhere outside of the city, but instead as part of the specific place that you chose to be a participant in. And so I know this is something that you've thought a lot about, not just in the areas that I mentioned, but really all across the country and the kind of small towns that really make up the fabric of, of the United States. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about your research into this space and some of how you think housing fits into it. Sure. Um, I'd love to. So I really started looking at housing as an architect and urban designer at the scale of the city, right? So I was looking at collective housing, multifamily housing, you know, from sort of seminal examples by Le Corbusier and, and Oscar Niemeyer, right? Two more contemporary examples in New York City, like Carmel Place, right? Micro units, right? All of these trends in sort of collectivity um, and large, massive housing projects uh, in sort of growing cities, right? And this was all following the narrative that growth is moving toward uh, the urban, right? Toward uh, a select few global cities, right? And that's where everything's happening. And I, I sort of struggled to negotiate that with my own background in the American Midwest. Right. And coming from a small town myself that my grandfather was the mayor of, you know, and my family was deeply embedded in uh, in northern Minnesota. Um, And so I started to ask, how do architects and designers start to look at housing sort of beyond the city? How do we look beyond the scope of urban centers and ask the question, how did people in this country begin to lay down roots? How did they begin to set up settlements and build homes? Right. 
And it certainly was far from urban. So when I came to Harvard, I started to take a deep dive into the history of the American landscape and American space. And so I took courses from Professor John Stilgo, among others, who you know was a disciple of J.B. Jackson, one of the most important American landscape historians, who started to reinvigorate the substantial study into the history of place in this country, right? Looking at the origins of American settlement and how this country was really begun as an agrarian country with mercantile cities that serviced agrarian land, right? People came to this country to farm. Most European immigrants to this country initially were from small towns and agrarian places. So they were already familiar with a kind of agrarian small town life. And that's exactly what they established in this country. You know, you look at towns like Concord and Massachusetts, pretty close to where I am in Cambridge, right? And it very much follows the old English sort of model of meets and bounds and, you know, the town organized around the town mm -hmm. square and Main Street, you know, has a certain requisite density, but then very quickly gives way to trees and farmland, right? So tracing that history from sort of initial colonial settlement to Jefferson's dream of the human farmer, which developed a very physical imprint on this country, right, with the public land survey system. And I started to realize, actually, that the whole DNA of this country was ultimately rural. If you look at sort of American space, it is a macrocosm of the individual homestead unit, the kind of 160-acre quarter section. And that's just sort of scaled up into counties and sections and, you know, so I started to realize, you know, that we were thinking of things a little bit in reverse, right? By thinking of cities first and then the rural as subservient to cities. I started to realize, well, actually in this country, it's the other way. And it always has been. Yeah, it's interesting that even the nomenclature of spaces is always sort of in reference to the city, that it goes from the urban to the suburban to the exurban, and then sort of like the hinterlands in some other place. And really almost the exact opposite, that you have these sort of destinations that people look, look to set up and homestead for any number of reasons. There's spots that folks chose to lay down roots because the soil sort of demanded it. You couldn't go much further and you, without recognizing that this was going to be an incredible fertile place to, you know, the kind of things that we see from like the Oregon Trail where people just didn't get any further. And that's where they stopped. And that became a spot where they started to scrape it through and make a place of it. It's interesting today is that, you know, you have a bit of spaces remain and the organization of these of small towns and rural places exist. But the reasons for heading there are quite different and the reasons that you might choose to be there are quite different. Have you looked into that a bit? Because, you know, now it's not that you're the axle on your wagon broke and now here you are. And it's also not that it's rarely that you have the same 10 generations all in the same town, there is some element of contemporary choice that, that happened. And what do you find are some of the criteria for choice that people are utilizing to decide the places that they participate in? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. So you're right, right? Like it's almost episodic in how places were chosen in this country. So to begin with, it was absolutely proximity to resources, but also proximity to the town. So with the original sort of settlements in New England, right, what was critical was being close enough to the town center, uh, really to the meeting hall, which was the church and the government in one. 
And so that actually informed the size and scale of the town. Once, once sort of settlement grew so far that you know, it was more than a 30-minute uh, commute into the town, then you know, they picked up roots and, and established a new town. Then it was very much following infrastructure, right? So once land was kind of depleted um, in the original colonies, then obviously we had the Northwest Territories, right? The Louisiana Purchase, which was obviously accessed first through the National Road. It cut through the Cumberland Gap and then through a series of canals that were dredged, and then later the railroad. So then it became sort of, okay, like we're all out of space in New England, right? So now we need to push west, and we're going to roughly follow the infrastructure, right? So towns sort of sprung up alongside uh, the land speculation, and, and towns grew, and they died, and they competed for county seat status and power and, right, uh, and prominence. And then, you know, into, you know, sort of the, the suburbanization and, you know, modern era once cities grew and it sort of became more about, you know, kind of resale value. And, you know, I want to live close enough to the major city, but I see my home as an investment. Today, you know, what I think is really driving where people choose to live outside of cities uh, is being close enough to a major city within you know, an hour or two driving distance so that one can still be physically connected to cultural amenities, to ball games and theater and restaurants and all that, right? But to be in a rural place that is completely outside of the urban sort of concentric rings, right? Not suburban, but a distinctive town. And that's places like Hudson, New York, right? Is a really good example. It's one of the fastest growing zip codes during the pandemic was Hudson, right? Which is about two hour drive from New York City and roughly two hours from Boston, right? So it was like super close, right? To two major cities. And so what I found is that the small towns that are growing the most have a couple of characteristics. One is their proximity to major cities. Two is their geotourism draw. So what about it in terms of, does it have a lake? Does it have proximity to a national park? or trails, right? Is it a beautiful place? Those are sort of principal, definitely principal drivers. And then there are sort of anomalies. There are towns that draw migrant workers, like uh, particularly in the Midwest. Schuyler, Nebraska is an example, right? It's got a major cargo plant, which is a well-connected place to a certain region in Mexico, right? Where sort of migrant workers come up for a season, um, live temporarily and then, you know, send money back home and maybe move back, right? So, you know, there, there are sort of anomalous conditions, but, you know, the, the towns that are growing, uh, those are the two main, main ingredients in my research. It's really that proximity to the major city, and it's, it's some kind of natural and or other, you know, geographic draw. Yeah, I mean, I think that the argument against the suburban model and suburbanization generally is that it sort of flattens out every place into being the same. And there's massive homogeneity and it doesn't really matter which collection of car washes plus Arby's plus Wendy's you live next to, it's always going to be the same. And then it's sort of, you have these other factors like, well, this one has a marginally better school district than the other, or this one is maybe 10 minutes closer to the big city that it's near than this other one. And that all impacts people's framing of their house as sort of their primary investment and incrementally shifts resale value and perceptions of like, how how valuable is this place to me? 
But I think, mm-hmm. yep. like you're saying, this sort of this kind of geotourism thing, another way to think about that is just there's sort of an imaginary that's like kind of a collective imaginary about these places that's formed from different characteristics. So, you know, like the Hudson River School is incredibly powerful even today in framing these destinations and saying, you know, when you go to Catskill, New York, and you say, I'm looking at the same exact view over the Hudson that was sort of painted for in, in 1850. And I think even then in the Hudson River School is an idealized notion of the rural, because like in those paintings, yeah. they would remove the like the railroad going by and they would sort of edit out all the things that seemed like they were part of industry or part of modernization. Mm-hmm. I think you're getting to a really good point where it's like, what is that? There's some sort of Venn diagram between the places that feel like they're holding on to that sort of idealistic view of ruralism, whatever we mean that to be, along with proximity. It's actually, it's funny, we talk to a lot of folks at Huts where, you know, they have this idea of like, well, I kind of want to get out there. I want to be away from all of it, sort of like Thoreau. And then I sort of laugh and it's like, yeah, I mean, Thoreau had a little cabin in Walden Pond, but his mom was bringing his laundry over. <laughs> and so he really wasn't like out there. That's and right. I think, and, and that's he not a lecture in Concord, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's not, yeah. that's not, I mean, he, that's he's not so a deeply embedded in, yeah. Yeah. In the yeah. town and city. Yep. Yeah. That's not a, that none of that's a bad thing, but it is recognizing that it's not just like in the middle of nowhere. It's about sort of the small town where you have both of those things. You have sort of you're on that edge of sort of like the great the great wild and you have sort of a high street. I think it's one of the reasons places like yeah. Livingston Manor are so in demand is that when you go to Livingston Manor in Sullivan County in New York, you're sort of on one side, kind of very, very close to highways. You have a high street, but then you know you're right on the edge of the Catskill Park. And then it's sort of endless acres of of wildness. And I think, yeah, it's somewhere where those two meet seems to be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really well said. You know, it's the DNA of small towns is interesting. You know, can you even call it urban? Um, I don't know. You know, it's why I, I sort of started to devise new terminology when talking about mm. small towns. I, I talk about like a townscape, right? What is a townscape versus a cityscape? We can certainly talk about urban characteristics of small towns, right? They have main streets that have blocks and that have a certain density to them and usually multi-story buildings that technically, you know, follow like Kevin Lynch's definition of what a city is, right? There are lines, there are points, there are nodes, there are landmarks. But it's exactly what you're getting at, right? Unlike cities with small towns, there's this kind of blurry distinction between what is natural and what is human, between what is the town and what is the countryside, right? And usually Main Street exists at this intersection, at this kind of, you know, transitional zone, right? That is really difficult to even define in sort of standard urban design terms. And that for me really, you know, in speaking with John Stilgo, we sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, does it even belong in the discourse of urban design or or do we really need to talk about small towns as their own distinctive entities deserving of study on their own right, you know, for what they actually are? Because hardly anyone's actually done it. Like Cool House had its little foray into the countryside, right? Yes. But very much sort of voyeuristic almost attempting to defend the rural-urban binary, right? There's urban, and then there's everything else. And the rural is everything else. 
And it's this kind of, you know, this wild place of, of server farms and technological innovation in farming and right, right. This kind of fetishization of this, of this weird place that doesn't even deserve to be studied for prehistory or, you know, it's defining characteristics. Um, so part of my work is really advocacy, right? In, in that small towns are distinctive entities and deserve study as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. That's like you can't just kind of scale down the the logic of cities and say this is sort of a small version of that. And where cities sort of understand yeah. themselves as what sort of major industry popped up around them and their contribution to their national GDP and the international sort of economic system, and they sort of understand themselves by their their civic contributions and the size of their opera houses, that's just never going to be mm -hmm. the tools of understanding what makes a small town its own unique place. You have to use very different that's criteria right. to sort of understand what makes that place a unique place and different from not just like a small town, but a specific location. What do you think some of those markers are? How do you think mm -hmm. a small town becomes or you know, they all have their own prehistory. They all have their ways that they've sort of grown up. And a lot of them lean on celebrating their origin story. But going into the future mm -hmm. as sort of small towns are sort of rethought, reimagined, have different sort of participants in them. What do you think the markers of place are going to be going forward? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. And it it kind of gets at you know, Patrick Geddes and Lewis Mumford's discussion of regionalism, which really sets up a strong argument for understanding these places based on resource extraction. Are they farming towns? Are they coal mining towns? Are they, you know, oil towns? So that has been, in almost all cases, the defining characteristic to date, mm -hmm. right? Going forward, those categories obviously become less and less important because let's, you know, let's be honest, these small towns in Nebraska or Iowa are not really servicing the agricultural production nearby anymore. And these are sort of massive corporate farms. Yeah, you're uh, not going to you're you're not going to the town square market with your soy yield when you have a you know a billion yeah. tons coming out. There's totally different markets for where the stuff is going to go. Exactly. Yeah. So really what, what we're starting to see is that those characteristics, like the grain elevator, is now being almost transformed or translated from its original purpose into a sort of cultural marker. So it's interesting, some of these towns in, in the Midwest, the grain elevator has become, you know, both a landmark, a sort of discernible point in the landscape that says, there's that town, right? You know, some of them are painted with murals, right? Mm. But also in some cases, a civic space. You know, there's one town in Iowa where the grain elevator has become an art gallery. There's another where it's become not the city hall, but the kind of meeting the meeting house for town meetings, right? So these defining characteristics, whether they're geographic or built, or you know, things like grain elevator or you know, opera houses or whatever, right? These are almost being reappropriated into new cultural markers that remember the past because the past is critical. The past gives the town its character. It gives its its genus loci, so so to speak. But now, obviously, the economic basis is different. It's tourism, it's remote workers, and it's people who haven't lived in these towns for very long mm -hmm. that are moving in. And they don't have this sort of generational attachment to these places. But as you said earlier, they have a deep 
appreciation for what these places have to offer. And they have a commitment that's as strong, I would, I would argue, as people who have lived there for generations to really make it a thriving place. I was going to say, I think one of the really interesting cultural distinctions between, well, I live in New York and I've lived in New York a very long time. And when people who are kind of just getting started or just coming out of college say, hey, should I move to New York? And it's like, maybe, but it depends. Is your kind of cultural milieu 100% about competition? If it is, yeah, this is yeah. a good spot. But if it's about expression, if it's about creativity, and it's about being sort of unhindered in doing that, that's a very bad place for that because the the barriers to entry are enormous. And so mm-hmm. I think one of the really Agreed. interesting distinctions between small towns and kind of rural places and the opportunity for them is that I think that because by nature, they're going to be somewhat less expensive, competition isn't sort of intrinsically baked into the DNA of it. You're not clamoring over people to just sort of get a breath. And I think it's quite liberating for all the things that we traditionally have looked at as cities of being the hotbed for. Like, oh, cities where like the creative people happen, where like interesting innovations happen. It's like, I don't know, under daily duress of just being able to like keep the <laughs> lights on, I'm not sure that really leaves much space for exploration. And I think that the future of the yeah. small town may be that it's the perfect infrastructure where all the cool ideas are going to come from. Absolutely. No, I mean, you, you hit on a lot of key points, right? So, you know, obviously remote work and our increasing or rather our decreasing reliance on physical proximity to where we work and the people who we interact with is taking the pressure off of centralization. So it's making these towns viable. It's viable to live four hours away from where you work. So that's sort of opened up this new territory, as you say, right, of affordable land, of places in which one can still remain connected to cultural centers and economic centers, right, in cities, but almost carve out your own niche in a place that there isn't the sort of oversaturation or hyper-competition for attention and for for real estate and for, you know, menial uh, resources. Really? Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I think if one really wants to follow the proverbial American dream, so to speak, and carve out your own space and your own identity and really pursue your dreams, some of the best places to do that are well outside of central cities where there's the space, there's the time, there's the, the pace of life, right? That enables one to do that in a way that is productive and that is healthy and that is just distinctly fundamentally different from doing so in New York City. I think what's really interesting, too, is that big cities had traditionally been a place for people who had a tolerance for speed, acceleration, activity, hecticness, and sort of thrived in that environment. And so they needed to go there to feel that. But what's interesting is that the world of the Internet has outpaced any speed that any physical city could ever deliver. And so if that is sort of the way that you're wired, and that's the wavelength that you run on, you know, getting honked out in the street actually feels quite slow compared to the pace you can choose to engage in online. And so I think so much of what I hear from a lot of our our clients and folks that we talk to, it's not just that, it's not that they're looking to get away from it all at all. They're actually looking to stay quite plugged in. And they do that through remote work, online, all of those things, and they get plenty of speed there. It's that when they are 
not doing that, they want a real sort of dichotomy between them. That's sort of like it's on or off. But I, I think it's interesting that you don't need to go to any physical place to achieve speed or achieve the feeling of like delightful chaos. You can plug into that quite easily online. That's right. It's kind of a recent development that is only improving, right? As we know from what we're doing right now, right? It's really interesting to sort of speculate. And one almost has to think that the shift, the massive growth of American cities is going to reverse, right? That what you're actually going to start to see is not suburbanization again, but decentralization in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. It really opens up, frankly, 94% of the land mass. If one looks at a map of the United States, yeah, cities and suburbs take up just over half the population, but they're like 10% of the landmass, you know? Mm. So what we're actually talking about here is almost a new frontier that is just beyond what so many of us are familiar with. And obviously, you know, things like high-speed rail and, you know, there, there are all kinds of discussions about how infrastructure, physical infrastructure will open these spaces up. But I think what's exciting is just what you talk about, that ability to sort of plug in to culture, to plug into business and work virtually, right? And then turn it off, right? Mm -hmm. And be in, be in a completely different place with a very different speed of life. That's already enabled. Like, yeah, physical infrastructure can make that a little bit easier, but we already sort of have the tools to be able to do this. And that's why you're starting to see some of these towns that are most proximal to major metropolitan areas already start to see a major influx of people who are not just interested in visiting these places, but laying down roots, building homes. You know, I think one of the things we'll start to see down the line in the same way, this is already happening, but the language of gentrification that you saw in and that you see in cities and sort of like undiscovered neighborhoods in LA and San Francisco and New York and Boston and wherever it might be, I think is going to start to apply to and maybe already does a lot of these very sought after towns that have the exact qualities that we're talking about. We'll see a rise of NIMBYism and NIMBY stuff and all kinds of debates around what the future land use is when a small town kind of ceases to be so small. And it's starting to absorb folks. And the exact reason someone might have moved there all of a sudden is getting usurped by population influx. I mean, I guess one last topic I wanted to hit in, hit on, but you mentioned the kind of grain elevator as both a, a marker and a type of interesting bit of adaptive reuse in these towns. And also that some of the physical properties of a small town include certain sort of building types along along the high street and certain expectations of what the structures might be depending on region. What's the space of sort of new construction? What's the role of new housing stock or new building types that get introduced into these locations? And, and maybe I guess my question is, what role do you think that mm -hmm. they need to adhere to, to either like bolster the qualities of the, the small town as it is? but also help it evolve and not treat it as, you know, small town land at, yep. in Epcot Center. Like, how does it become, yep. how does it continue to be evolve and be a real place? That's a great question. As a start, right, like we have to acknowledge the role of new urbanism in this conversation. These attempts to build small towns from scratch mm -hmm. 
generally don't create very vibrant places. Sure. Right? It's the sort of Disneyfication of the small town, right? So that's what we have to be really careful about is keeping the sort of qualities of, of a town that maybe Jane Jacobs would say were pretty good. So buildings of different ages, right? Preserving landmarks, having a certain walkability, maintaining the kind of basic character and characteristics of the place. So what actually becomes really important is that small town planners are given a prominent voice at the table. So a really interesting project underway is the Strong Towns Initiative that was started by a guy named Charles Marone in Minnesota. He's a small town planner who wrote a book and started a nonprofit, really advocating for the increased role of planning in thinking about small town growth. Rather than just sort of managing decline, how do you think about growth, mm. right? How do you think about on the one hand, reversing the effects of urban renewal, which did, in fact, affect a lot of towns, just like cities, where older buildings were demoed, right, to create way for more parking lots. So one thing that new construction can do in small towns is fill in the gaps. You have a downtown, you can thicken that downtown. You can make it more dense. You can sort of fill in parking lots, right, and make that small high street even more urban. And another thing that one can do in small towns is to extend the grid, build more housing, but don't build it in a suburban manner where you have a sort of subdevelopment or a subdivision a few miles out of town. But can we think about new ways to grow within the grid of the town itself so that you know, you're maintaining a certain superstructure, if you will, right? The kind of framework, the DNA of the town, but you're just thickening it. So in some ways, you know, small town growth and new construction can follow some rules of urban expansion in much the way that Los Angeles grew, for instance. So the role of new construction in small towns is really to thicken it. It's to make it a larger version of itself uh, sure. in some ways in these towns that are growing. Yeah, It's not to suburbanize it, which has been the sort of paradigm, right, for sure. a very long time. So I think Marone's arguments are very good, but the role of the town planning departments and having a significant seat at the table in conversation with local government, with developers, to think about new models of expanding these towns. I think what's important in this is that there's a space for small towns to evolve without losing their character. And small towns don't need to be frozen in time in a, uh, a sort of like idealized vision of what it might have been in 1950 when someone was kind of drinking a, a root beer along the street. Like it had, it's allowed to become something yep. new and doesn't necessarily undermine the qualities that make it appealing and charming. And I think in concert with really great kind of town planning board regulation and the right type of land use regulation that finds a balance between increasing tax base, diversifying economic opportunities, attracting new types of folks through tax incentives or other, while at the same time mm -hmm. caring deeply about preservation, but not having that be stuck in the stuck in the mud forever, I think is going to be one of the challenges that is going to be addressed between designers and regulators over time. Like, how do we yep. find that mix that allows a space for things to evolve and not have it be, well, it's not going to change or it dies. Like that can't be the paradigm. It has to, these places have to retain their DNA, utilize 
themselves as sort of a scaffolding for growth over time and then sort of get filled in yeah. in appropriate ways. And I think that's a really exciting, exciting future. And I'm I'm excited that really smart people like you are researching that and thinking about that. And we're hoping to have some sort of role in participating in creating some of these places and improving the outcomes of the future of the small town and and not kind of keeping them stuck and also not changing their inherent characteristics. Mm-hmm. Anthony, th- mm-hmm. thank you so much for, for joining. Absolutely. And I'd love you. to continue this conversation in another session. I think this is super duper valuable and so many great texts and, and great thinkers that you kind of brought up here. I'm going to include all of those in the notes below this video. So anyone who's interested in any number of things, new urbanism or any of the sort of topics, Jane Jacobs, any of the topics that we went over here, we'll include links to those texts. And for anyone interested in in housing and urban design and the future of how we create places, these are things we should be reading along with uh, Anthony's future books. And Anthony, while we're while we're here, maybe you can just tell us a little bit around what you have kind of coming up and things that you're working on next. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Wayne. I really enjoyed the conversation. I uh, look forward to many to come. So at the moment, I'm doing some pretty exciting research, both at Harvard and I'm teaching at Northeastern courses on housing. Also sort of looking at working toward publishing a book. Uh, my research into American small towns, that's all sort of in the pipeline. A lot of the things we're we're talking about today are, are sort of embedded in the book. So I, I'm really looking forward to releasing that and continuing the, the conversation on these places that I think are incredibly important and sadly understudied. Great. I'm glad we have you looking into it and we'll definitely keep close in touch. Anthony, thank you so much and have a, have a great rest of the day. Thanks so much, Wayne. See ya. Hey guys, thank you for listening to Homework. To learn more about Huts, please visit huts.com or find us on social at Huts NYC. Check out the episode description to find links to all the interesting names and resources from today's homework.